0: Welcome to The Theater Project. Today, The Theater Project is thinking about theater before and after Stonewall. Mark Spina and Harry Patrick Christian share their observations about changes in theater and film over the course of their lifetimes.
1: How are you?
2: I'm, I'm great. How are you, buddy?
1: I'm doing good. <laughs> Harry, I thought that now that we are gentlemen of a certain age, it might be a good time for us to reflect back over our long lives. Yes, well,
2: you do go back quite a few centuries farther than I do, but I digress.
1: Well, I'm not going to go there. Uh, (laughs) I was thinking that rather than go back to the Stone Ages, we could just go back to Stonewall.
2: Well, I think that's great, but I I don't think we can talk about that without going back a little further. Okay. and giving you a little prehistory um, about what you we what are talking You know all about prehistory,
1: Harry, please, <laughs> yes, by all do. Means, take over. But I think we, we need to let our audience know what we're talking about. What is our theme? Mm, what is our theme? Well, I was thinking, since this is going to be broadcast, uh, or at least released around gay pride, that we would talk about uh, what are the changes that we've seen in theater and film and, and in actors and actresses and, in, and about gay actors and gay, gay actor. portrayals, gay themes uh-huh. uh, in For the media. Pride Month
2: in June. Because yeah. Pride Month is in June. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a great idea. Um, and, you know, it's, I really find it's difficult to even talk about um, Western theater without talking about gay people because we have so many gay playwrights, composers, it's astonishing. It's almost as if there wouldn't be any theater uh, without these, these wonderful uh, homosexual men. I mean, we've got Tennessee Williams, Noel Coward, Terrence Rattigan, Stephen Sondheim, uh, Cole Porter, uh, William Inge, uh, Edward Albee, uh, Tony Kushner. You know, the list goes on and on and on and on. Of course, the pre-Stonewall uh, playwrights had to do uh, to my research from what I found out. It seems that the first overt out, if you will, uh, depiction of gay men and men in drag who were out and proud, if you will, was in 1927 in a play called The Drag written by a woman named Jane Mast. Have you ever heard of it, Mark?
1: Uh, I believe I've heard of it, Harry, but why don't you tell us more? <laughs> well, it turns out that Jane Mast was a pseudonym for Mae
2: West, the famous May West.
1: That's what confused me. I thought it was May. The West. The
2: censors, they uh, censored the play and they essentially didn't let it open. So Mae West, being very clever, just wrote another play, <laughs> tweaked a few things and gave it a different title but it essentially was the plot and the characters of the drag. Mae West was very, very forward thinking and had people in her personal life that she adored. She was really a sort of an early civil rights advocate as well. In her play, she had black characters that she treated as equals and that they would laugh and have fun, even though in the movies they were maids. But uh, that really was the beginning Censorship, it's, it's uncanny how it really slammed down about the same time as it did in film with the production code. And a lot of people who have studied history believe that because the Depression hit and the Dust Bowl and everything, that there was this belief that perhaps in the 20s we were too liberal, too free, thinking, and too much free love, and have too much fun. So everything sort of clamped down. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. So I was surprised to find that in England, the theater, the stage actually had their own production code, very similar to what they were doing in Hollywood. I'm not familiar with any similar thing in On Broadway,
1: are you? Uh, Only what I've learned about through watching The Nance, uh, when The Purge in New York against gay burlesque comics. Mm -hmm. Of course, I know this through a fictional source rather than through a a literary source. But according to the play The Nance, uh, there was a purge in the 30s. They wanted to close down burlesque houses and also shut down the gay comic aspect. uh, Many of the burlesque shows would have a gay comic, do a sketch, and that that was considered... uh, putting deviant behavior on stage, even though, of course, it was all double entendre and very subtle by some standards.
2: Well, that's exactly what you're talking about, this, this Nance character, this flamboyant, <clears throat> and people aren't familiar with the term Nance. It was a slang term for a very flamboyant, uh, obviously, homosexual character on the stage in vaudeville, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it's
2: interesting, after you know this production code came in, There still were gay characters on stage and in film, except they were these funny, flamboyant, over the top characters, which brings me to a personal anecdote. I was watching the movie Spartacus with my family. Uh, No, no, yeah, it was Spartacus. Um, And the actor John Dahl was playing this very effete friend of the emperor who was obviously supposed to represent decadence and uh, this sort of leering, uh, the worst aspects of a game man, if you will. And my father was like, oh, I can't stand it. Well, I was, you know, making comments. And then later on, this Peter Ustinov's character is a, a major figure in the film. And he too is very flamboyant, but he's funny. He's very funny. And we're all laughing. And my father makes, John Dahl shows up again. And, and my father's like, "Oh, I can't stand that. Uh. And my mother said, but what about Peter, Peter Ustinov? And my father says, but he's funny. And I think that says a lot.
1: You, you can be gay if you're funny.
2: If you're funny. And you're not thinking about the sex act. Quentin Crisp said it best. He said, you know, and people have no problem with homosexuality or homosexuals, as long as they don't think about the sex act, because it freaks them out. But throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s, early 60s, proliferation of these subverted gay characters. In just about everything Tennessee Williams wrote, there is a a gay character that we don't see. There's the dead skipper in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. The thing that I find fascinating about Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is that Big Daddy is very tolerant of, of the possibility that you know, maybe his son and Skipper did. Say. He's like, I've been to a lot of, I've seen a lot of things, is basically what he's saying. I've seen a lot of things in my life, son. So this is not that big a deal. It's Brick himself who is the homophobic character who's tortured by whatever may or may not have happened or whatever feelings or thoughts he may have had with his friend who committed suicide, his, his dear friend. And then there's Streetcar. There's car. a similar
1: character in Tenet. Yes, exactly. The dead boyfriend in Streetcar. So you could be gay if you're dead is another message because Blanche Dubois talks about the young man she had the affair with who committed suicide because he couldn't deal with his own homosexuality.
2: Well, she it wasn't just your friend. She was married to him. She married him and she was 16, as she points out. You know, it's a very young girl. And the, the heartbreaking thing is that, you know, this husband of hers that she did love committed suicide because of something she said to him just before he killed himself. And then there's William Inge who I did 10 one act plays years ago, it was called Ten Little Inches, And these were short one-act plays, but they were heartbreaking because it was very clear that William Inge did not see a happy ending for these characters who all were tortured by some sort of unre- unrequited love or lust. And he himself committed suicide in the end. But he had very successful plays, Picnic. They were all plays where the female characters were these backwater towns, much like the Kansas that Inge grew up in who you know some stud walks into town and they're you know like I should they got to have him. <laughs> you
1: know? uh-huh right right
2: <laughs> but they they never end up happy which is very which is very sad but then you had the Terrence Radigan plays and i just found out that for his play uh, separate tables he originally wanted the uh, military man who's at the, the place to be homosexual that his crime was not diddling with children in the theater but that he was homosexual buddy he was forced to change that. My point is, it was always there. If These were not just gay people going to the theater. They, obviously, it, it attracted a huge... Popular audience, all these plays and playwrights,
1: and yet it was it, it was there, but it was there within certain parameters. So certainly the suicide theme comes up over and over again. Uh, the, the children's hour, the the character who thinks she may be gay, and it ends by she hangs herself. And
2: that play was in the
1: thirties, and that play was in the thirties. So it was it's been there, but it seems like with or without a production code, there was this unspoken rule that the characters either had to be very comic or they had to come to some terrible end uh, so that it preserved society's sensibilities about gay people but again we're living in a very different time thankfully i have to bring up the
2: play tea and sympathy which i think most people have seen the film versions of these plays we're talking about got a hot tin roof picnic streetcar and they were heavily heavily edited but the play versions were were very overt and came right out of said, This is this, this is what is going on. So I just want whoever's listening to understand that these play versions were heavily censored and confusing. Suddenly last summer, first time I saw it, I, I was like, what, what is, what's going on? <laughs> I don't understand. Because everything, it was only when I saw it as an adult and I was like, oh, okay, I see what this is about. But they couldn't come out and really say in a lot of these things on film But they did on stage. Tea and Sympathy, however, I find it's a very, very important play in a shift because Robert Anderson is a heterosexual man who wrote this play. And it's not about homosexuality. It's about homophobia. And that the most straight acting person in the play, the husband, is the one who's really gay. And the, the effeminate boy who's accused of being gay is not gay. So I, I think that play, people if, <laughs> should go back and look at the actual play script and, and realize what's going on there. Like I, think, I think there's a big misconception of what that play was really about.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and in the McCarthy era as well. This play came out, and I think it's an important progressive movement in what we're talking about in audience understanding of mm-hmm. gay themes. So that brings us all the way up to, I would think, 1968, the, the Boys in the Band. Although there were two nasty articles, I have to point out, that came out in the New York Times. Uh, they didn't name gay playwrights, but accused them of making uh, their female characters, basically were gay men, in the disguise of a woman. <clears throat> this came out after Aldi won the Pulitzer Prize for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Albie himself says what's fascinating is that a, a lot of men felt that Martha was a, a fictional, you know, there's no woman like that. that is, you, you were immis- misogynistic. But every woman he knew said, You got it right on the nose. <laughs> Which brings me to these censors. I think audiences have always been more accepting and open to things as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for themselves. But the, the, these censors that that they put in play, in charge of deciding what we could and could not see, a were not that smart and uh, felt that they had to protect the public from from things.
1: The other thing too is that you know the successful playwrights of the forties, fifties, and sixties. You know, even though they want their plays to be, go on to be made into movies and to tour regionally, they are writing for a New York cosmopolitan, almost international audience because of who is in New York to see these plays. It would be interesting if we could track how were the, how were the regional and touring productions with these depictions treated? I mean, will it play in Peoria is still a phrase that I hear occasionally. You can't get away with in Peoria what you can get away with in New York.
2: That's interesting you say that because uh, there, there was a theater in Atlanta, Georgia,
1: where I lived. I, you know,
2: I lived outside of Atlanta for six, seven years of my life. When I moved away, uh, there was a little theater boom, and there were professional theaters. There's the Alliance Theater in downtown Atlanta, and Marietta, the town that I lived in, had their... Marietta in the Square, which was also an equity theater, and was really trying to be progressive, and they brought in some gay-themed plays, and some friends of mine down there said, they, for instance, they went to see the play uh, What's the baseball one? Take Me Out? Take Me Out. (laughs) There's nudity on the stage, and once the nudity appeared, you know, people started leaving. But, in Atlanta, (laughs) what would bring the audiences in was if they found out there was nudity. (laughs) So the difference between a rural area and a a metropolitan area is a titillation aspect Mm -hmm. of course, to, to any sexually themed player movie and it's human nature. We are a Puritan country, but sex sells. Let's face it. It has always sold. I, I think that's why you're saying, will it play in Peoria? There are people who will go when they hear like suddenly last summer, once it was banned by the Catholic church, it became a hit. What is it banned about? What What are they not wanting me to see? Mm -hmm. Which brings us to drag, the drag aspect of theater. Having played several uh, uh, female roles myself as a character actor, I've been fascinated by the response. I've had a a friend say to me when he saw me dressed as a woman, a good friend. Oh, my Lord, you make the most unattractive woman I've ever seen. But then I was in front of a man. That's a good friend, Harry. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but on the other hand, I was with another man, a stranger who turned to his wife and said, pointed to me and said, that's the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. (laughs) So it works both ways, but I wanted to just share this because I think it's apt and accurate. John Lithgow, the great actor, he says, in 1957 on a hot summer evening in Ohio, I appeared in an outdoor skit on the last night of Boy Scout camp. I was 11 years old. The skit was a brief hastily rehearsed version of the familiar tale of the villain, the hero, and the damsel in distress tied to the railroad tracks. I had been cast as the damsel in distress, and I remember nothing of the preparations leading up to the performance, only the queasy fear that I was about to suffer catastrophic embarrassment and humiliation in front of hundreds of jeering boys. What I do remember in vivid detail is the performance itself. From my first appearance, I created a sensation. A flowery tablecloth pinned around my waist was my skirt. A scout bandana was my coquettish headscarf. A t shirt and hiking boots completed the look. The shrieking crowd emboldened me to mince around in my makeshift drag. I squealed for mercy as the villain man handled me and tied me to the tracks. Eagle Scout Larry Fogg, playing my hero, untied me, hoisted me aloft, lost his footing, and collapsed with me on top of him. Gales of laughter showered down on us. I was probably the shyest boy at camp, but that night I was the number one in camp. What made all those raucous boys laugh like that? I've been thinking about that question for years. And he goes on to say that he became a character actor and that he played six female roles in his career, the most famous being Roberta in The World According to Garp. And he says, so what have all these adventures taught me? That the sight of a man playing a woman can indeed be hilarious, but it can also be horrific. The most beautiful woman, the most horrible woman. And it can be deeply moving. Switching genders is the most potent tool an actor has to startle an audience, whether his intent is to amuse, to frighten, or to move them. It is a mysterious weapon, and its power is derived from the darkest, most unknowable mystery. Deep down... What is the opposite sex really like? For men and women, this basic question is a primary source of both titillation and anxiety. We carry this emotional baggage with us when we watch movies and play. It's no wonder that we are so drawn to the sight of men in drag on screen or stage. No matter what kind of movie or play they're in, they are exploding our fears. And I think that's fascinating and true. What do you
1: think? Well, I think that's what draws so many of us to theater. Uh, you know, They say that an artist is capable of imagining him or herself in any situation, as any character, regardless of gender, regardless of motivation, regardless of ethnicity, uh, we, that we go to the theater and we participate in theater because we want to transcend our own reality. and and it gives us that freedom and it gives the audience that freedom because when it's done well and when it's done right someone can imagine themselves taking the journey of someone who is completely unlike them in gender in race in circumstance and that's what develops our empathy and that's what strengthens our empathy and that's what theater i think is for right now there's a lot going on in the culture that, that is pulling us apart But I still think that theater is the place where we can come together and imagine ourselves in someone else's shoes and try to understand their point of view, no matter how far we may be separated. And and I know that I try that every day with my conservative friends trying to imagine, well, what does it look like from their point of view? I mean, that's my theater training. What are they thinking? Because I want to understand them better, because I think it's our only hope to come together. And I think drag is the most powerful example, because it is so taboo in some ways for some cultures to cross-dress. Certainly not the British. Well, no, it's a tradition. I, I, I do want to, I mean, Harry, I've always denied the rumor that you attended the opening night of Streetcar, in spite of your vast knowledge of theater of the 40s and 50s, I know you weren't really there, but even though I suspect there's a portrait in the closet somewhere. However, I I would like to advance a little bit into the 70s and the 80s. Yes, of course. Post Stonewall, um, because as a young person coming out, you know, just after Stonewall, you know, I was looking for more open representations of, of gay people. And in the village in the 70s and 80s, there were all of these little groups doing plays, you know, they were moving away from the Tennessee Williams. They were moving away from the gay character is the one who committed suicide off stage or is the Nance. They were trying to explore other representations and some of it was wonderful and some of it was awful, but it was very exciting to see that happening. And we were really looking post Stonewall for how is the culture going to deal with it? There was a book called The Front Runner that I don't know if anybody remembers now. I read it, yeah. Yeah, The Gay Community, you know, it was about this romance between a coach and and uh, an athlete, and the gay community was dying for this to be made into a major motion picture, and I, I don't believe it ever happened. What was made into a major motion picture was the novel Cruising. Am I, am I getting that title right? Was it a novel? I don't know. I think it was based on a novel, and it was about um a gay serial killer. I never saw it. I mean, I was part of the boycott. I would never censor it, but people in the post-Stonewall era were very upset that the only representation of gay characters were as either a murderer or murder victims. Then we transition into the 80s, and along comes Christopher Durang and Nikki Silver. And this is 10 to 15 years before anybody had ever thought of Will and Grace. But what they both do is they write plays about gay characters pursuing heterosexual relationships. So in Beyond Therapy, the gay character has decided he wants to get married and have children and his boyfriend can live over the garage. In The Food Chain by Nikki Silver, uh, there is a triangle between two men and one woman, but the onstage antics pretty much focus on one of the men and the women. And this allowed these plays to transition from, you know, the the tiniest little theaters down in the village up to major off-Broadway runs. And this was the Will & Grace model 15 years before Will & Grace had happened. So gay people become acceptable and they're non-stereotypical gay people if they are pursuing heterosexual relationships, which I found very interesting and very clever. And I don't know how they stumbled on it, uh, but... I'm grateful that they did. And, of course, they're you know, major playwrights and wonderful themes. And then, of course, there's Paula Vogel, who has al- has always been very out and very proud. And, of course, you know How I Learned to Drive, I believe, is based on some personal experiences of her own. And even though that play doesn't particularly deal with homosexuality, but there was Jane Chambers before Paula Vogel, who was also... I would always see her work up on Cape Cod, um, you know, and in these places in the village. So it was a very exciting time, and we were all waiting for it to break into the mainstream. When When are these plays going to break out of these tiny little theaters, summer theater in Cape Cod, well, you're talking about the 70s or the 80s even into the 80s
2: i didn't know of any of these plays that you're talking about except how i learned to drive which came i think much later these off-broadway plays that you're talking about what i did hear of because it was made into a film was boys in the Band. when i eventually did see it in my 20s it it, it made me oh, it made me feel dirty <laughs> it, made, it was not pleasant uh, and the characters seem to be, all of them seem to be self-loathing, which was interesting when I saw it, the, the revival a couple of years ago. It was all in the depiction in the direction and, and stuff. So the script, I understand, had been tweaked some, but there was a lot of fun. You saw that there was joy and life in these characters, as well as, you know, everybody's got pain and all that kind of stuff. But I digress. My point, what I was trying to say about the 70s is that New York at that time was a very scary place, so it really was the local people who were seeing and seeking out the plays that you're you're talking about by Durang. So I don't think there was a national consciousness uh, about them. So they weren't playing in Peoria or Marietta, Georgia. I guess is my point. If you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, the, and I think the culture wasn't ready for it. I mean, it was definitely a progression. And I think gay people have definitely benefited from the fact that you have a lot of, you know, gay white men in the entertainment industry who had the power to push this particular agenda. I mean, no doubt about it, that they were advocating for their own group and saying, you know, we want to be depicted the way we see ourselves rather than the way, you know, the Catholic Church sees us or, you know, some other groups that are not so positive.
2: I think we at this point really have, I think you have to applaud some of the people in the television industry because, In a lot of ways, I feel they were much, much more advanced than the film, Hollywood film industry in uh, telling stories. And, you know, these were not gay men. Norman Lear, for instance, on his comedy television sitcoms brought up a lot of issues that made it possible for my family, my Southern Baptist family, to have conversations about things that I'm sure my parents would not have been comfortable bringing up. Everything from rape uh, to Edith Bunker's menopause. There was a a movie of the week with Hal Holbrook, which dealt with him being a homosexual father. I really just wanted to throw that in there. I really think the television industry was bolder and braver in a lot of ways in bringing the topic.
1: Our friend Daima has often, you know, whenever I've said anything about television that's somewhat negative daima has always pointed out how television helped develop black identity in the 60s and 70s and bring people who never interacted across racial lines were suddenly seeing more black characters they were seeing situations that were integrated and that paved the way with all of the shows in the late 60s. Um, I know I was very inspired by Room 222, you know, about teachers in uh, an urban environment. And I ultimately became a teacher in an urban environment for a big part of my career. So I agree with her, and I agree with you about All in the Family, absolutely. I think it helped my grandfather reflect on his own racism. I mean, I saw it happen, and it was it was a great thing, a great achievement.
2: Well, yeah.
1: That show, really, we have a lot to thank for it. I think also there were many, many of these sitcoms would have one episode about a gay character, and that was the argument throughout the 70s and 80s you know a, t- a television series can take the risk of having one episode about a gay character or one episode about maud having an abortion because people will still watch the series even if they are offended by one episode or choose not to watch one episode and that was that was supposedly the excuse for why they can take the risk deal with gay characters and controversial themes whereas movies you know had to succeed on a you know a mass level and could not take those risks they claimed of course much has changed
2: yes it has thank the (laughs) lord much has changed no this was i I remember roots coming back to what taima said Mm -hmm. roots was a national phenomenon if you recall Mm -hmm. everybody watched everybody it seems watched that show if you look at the ratings it could not have been just black people who were tuning in. Much what I'm saying about these uh, movies and plays with gay themes, there's no way they would be produced uh, if people didn't think they could make a profit on
1: them. Yeah, and I think that especially television in the privacy of their own homes, People were comfortable watching material with gay characters where in a conservative town, you might be very reluctant to have someone see you buy a ticket for boys in the band. So I think that dynamic also, much as I may hate to admit it, has helped create a more open society. We may be living in the backlash to some of that now, but nevertheless, I think it has created a more open society. I do too, and, and I
2: do think you have to give credit to television for for. I mean, just look at Ellen DeGeneres, what her original sitcom series, the the national discussion that the character she was playing was going to come out at the same time as the actress playing her and where she is now. Her show's been on television. I was astonished to learn 19 years, 19 years. The woman has had a daily talk show. So, you know, and people adore her. They love her until this recent, you know.
1: And Rachel Maddow is certainly, you know, a successor to that success.
2: And I was watching Halston on Netflix, where beloved Ewan McGregor, this movie star, he's the executive producer, and he's playing Halston. And there are some, even for me, they seem to be graphic sex scenes. But there's a general public that I think now is quite used to This kind of thing, and it's become rather ho-hum. But as you said, I think that's part of the national backlash that we've been experiencing.
1: I I certainly think that the media, which includes theater, has helped all of us understand the huge variety of human experience, Mm -hmm. you know, across racial lines, across gender lines, and and it helped us be more accepting, I, I, I hope. I hope that's the ultimate result. But one other thing I wanted to bring up was how how happy I am to see, you know, when I'm auditioning young actors, how very different they are from the actors that I knew 20 years ago. So, for instance, I know a lot of young gay actors who are very comfortable coming in and presenting themselves as young gay people, Mm -hmm. and they may switch attitudes, behavior, uh, mannerisms as required for the part but they no longer come in feeling they have to hide who they are.
2: Which is beautiful,
1: as it should be. It is a very gratifying thing, especially for someone, you know, of my generation. I never expected to see gay marriage in my lifetime. You know, it hadn't even occurred to me to want it uh, because it seemed so impossible. I mean, and again, it's amazing to see when young women come in now, And they audition for period pieces. They frequently just blow them out of the water because they're so strong. And and a period piece that is written for you know the traditional uh, for our generation, sort of I guess the Sleeping Beauty character, you know, come rescue me, come rescue me. The the fragile princess who requires rescuing. Young women today really have to work at that if that's what's required by the script because the young women who come in today are strong, independent dynamic, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, so that ingenue, that, that, that sort of wilting ingenue thing doesn't come automatically to them. Oh, no. If, if you need that for a play, you have to say, think of Laura in Glass Menagerie. You have to (laughs) give them, you have to really say, think of this very fragile character, you know, just a blow, a a puff of air will wilter. That's
2: my biggest problem, directing. Yeah. Young women is getting them to even carry
1: themselves in
2: a way that's not casual and relaxed.
1: Well, it is interesting that you can, but it does does give you a window to how much more empowered women are today than they were even 20 years ago, which 20 years ago, I think we, we all wanted to think of ourselves as liberated and you know, conscious of these things. And yet you can see the cumulative effect of women being more empowered today than they were 20 years ago, 40 years ago. And it's, it's very gratifying.
2: I want to go back to, to comment on what you said about how great it is to see these young actors coming in and not feeling that they have to disguise who they are. They feel free to be who they are. Uh, and they can change into whatever is required of the character, because even out in Arizona, where I go to hold auditions, uh, this very the last one I can't had a transgender someone transitioning who came and auditioned, and that's happened more than once. Part of me is because of my age, I have to admit, I get surprised, but then you know I'm like like you, I'm like I'm, I'm so proud of them in a way that they don't have a fear of being who they are.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to take for granted, you know, that we do live, you and I, on the East Coast. <laughs> I know this is not uniform across the country, and that we live in, a, we we are lucky enough to work in an, in a more accepting industry. I, so I I realize that this may not be uni- it's certainly not universal globally, and it's probably not universal across the United States. But I still think it's a sign of progress that we are moving in an, in a direction of more acceptance of difference and more understanding and more empathy. I, I truly believe that, in spite of mm-hmm. in spite of the backlash that I think we've been experiencing you know recently.
2: Well, this this is Arizona where I'm talking about, which is an extremely conservative state. Still, even though they voted blue this time. <laughs> But I, I want to go back to, to Broadway for a second. And in the early 80s, I believe it was 1981, a group of high school students, Northside High School of Performing Arts, went up to New York City. I was with them, and we got off the bus. And this is back in the days when you could see previews for 12 bucks. And we saw a big poster, uh, previews now, Richard Gere in Bent.
1: I was there opening night. Well, we were there in
2: previews. We didn't know anything about this play except that Richard Gere was in it. And he was a star. You know, he was a movie star, an up-and-coming hot movie star. So we, we went. And I have to say, it it really did change my life. That play changed my life. But first of all, historically, I did not know about the persecution of homosexuals in Germany. It was the same as the persecution of the Jews. I, I didn't know that aspect of that history. It was astonishing, the performances between Richard Gere and David Dukes. What was asked of those actors was, was amazing. And it, To this day, I said no movie or anything that Richard Gere has done has matched what he did in Bent, and that he truly is a great, great actor. But I can say personally, it changed, it opened my mind in a way that I've had the rest of my life. Just from seeing that play that I knew nothing about, knew, did not know what the themes were, I I went in blind. There was quite a bit of discussion among these teens when that play was over. (laughs) everybody had a different reaction but what we all the, the one reaction we all shared was we were blown away that it made every single one of us think about our own personal attitudes and that that was a beautiful thing a wonderful thing and for me like i said a life changing thing
1: well i remember the eagerness i mean that's why i had a ticket for opening night because you know to see a play with ostensibly a gay hero. I mean, he's sort of an anti-hero in some ways. But to see a play, you know, with gay characters in the lead on Broadway at the time was so shocking, you know, and it wasn't boys in the band. It was something more heroic and more positive in a very sad way. But I had to be there opening night. It was a landmark. And and, uh, I went back and saw it again. And I remember uh, seeing it the second time. With a friend, we were so wrapped, we were leaning forwards in our seat in the balcony, the people behind us had to keep reaching forward to pull us back because we were obstructing their view. But that's how wrapped we were, you know, with this was so fascinating to us. Um, And then, of course, 5th of July came along, you know, and it began to open up. Things began to change on Broadway, on Off-Broadway, and then uh, ultimately Will and Grace on television. And things have things have come a long way. And as Barack Obama says, the arc of justice does eventually swing forward. It just sometimes takes much longer than we want it to. And this is one of those examples. Yes, it does. And I, I'd like to point out
2: two amazing personal experiences I've had in the theater in the last couple of years. They were very similar two very, very different plays. wanted to mention that I had a very similar experience uh, one of the last two times I was ever in a theater before the shutdown. One was a production of Ragtime and one was a production of The Inheritance. Ragtime was at the South Orange Performing Arts Center uh, and the, the person sitting to my left was a middle-aged woman, a stranger to me. Uh, when I saw The Inheritance on Broadway, the same experience. There was the lady on my left was a stranger to me. And at the end of the first act of both those productions, we both were weeping, turned to each other and embraced each other, held each other in our arms and cried a little bit and then talked about the experience we had shared. And we had this bond that was profound for just, you know, five minutes. I'll never probably see either of those women again in my life, but I will remember them the rest of my life just as I will remember these plays and how they moved us, you know, and I don't, I can't think of, I know that's never happened in a movie theater. (laughs) There have been strangers to my right and left in a movie theater. And I've had profound experiences in a movie theater. I mean, first time I saw E.T., when the bicycles went up into the air, I rose up out of my seat, (laughs) right along with the bicycles, you know. And Mark, you know, I remember you mentioned when you saw The Wind with Lillian Gish, how um, terrified you were when she
1: was Ill. For those of you who don't know, The Wind is a silent film. <laughs>
2: uh, anyway, the, the book I was mentioning by Michael Rydell said that, you know, people forget that New York and Broadway was not a tourist destination during the 70s because New York was so scary in people's minds and in reality, and that... You know, Disney and Andrew Lloyd Webber did a lot to bring people from the Midwest, so to speak, to Broadway to see shows and things. And, but that the play really came back. The play had pretty much disappeared as far as having a long run in, in New York until Angels in America brought people's consciousness back to how powerful just seeing a play without music or a chandelier falling on top of you, even though they did have an angel, that giant angel who crashed through the ceiling.
1: I, I, I think, I, I know, I just wanted to say about that, that that shared experience of theater, mm-hmm. it, and it is yeah. different from movies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think with movies, and I always feel that with movies and television, I'm experiencing that somewhere in my own head, that those images are going into my brain and it's it's an isolated experience. But with theater, you're being sucked forward towards those actors on the stage. And you are having a common experience with the people sitting next to you because you're all focused on these real people, real people playing characters. But nevertheless, it's a real experience as opposed to a mental experience. And I I don't think I'm putting it very well. And yet I felt it time and time again that that's, that's the difference of live theater. We are experiencing something in the world rather than in our brains, Um, because I'm convinced any minute now they're going to put an electrode in our brain and the movie will just be beamed right in. You won't even need a TV set or a computer. Uh,
2: I hope that doesn't
1: happen. I'm not so sure. I mean, I think the cell phone embedded in the palm of the hand is just a day away. So
2: (laughs) We do have watches. They have yeah. the iPhone watch now. <laughs>
1: yes.
2: But, I, I, yeah, I, what you just said is absolutely true. It is a profoundly different experience in the theater. I think your focus is different. And whether it's a straight play, gay play, a play or a musical, the shared experience in a theater, they've proven that the audience's hearts synchronize mm. while they're watching this. And that's a beautiful thing. It, it moves me to tears how beautiful a human experience that is. And we should be grateful. And hopefully we'll be getting back to it very soon. I don't know if they've done any studies on whether people's hearts synchronize
1: on Zoom or not. <laughs> no, but their brain waves fry equally.
2: <laughs> and I know we all share Zoom fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very real thing. <laughs> But we have, I think, celebrating Pride Month. I am glad we went, came to this topic but, because it really did remind me of, like, like I said, my bit, my experience, of the play bit, uh, and how it changed me personally. And then this inheritance, this recent play I saw, six hours—it's uh, a long time—but it was the end of that first act. I have to say, did you see it, Mark?
1: Well, no, but it is based on my favorite. Novel, uh, Howard's End, which is, yeah. you know, the most moving. I mean, I read Howard's End every two or three years just to remind oh. myself of, you know, only connect. I mean, that it, it's the message of theater: only connect with other people's experience, make the connection. Uh, you know, and there's nowhere you can't go, but that's how Howard's End starts out: only connect. So, and
2: you know what? You know, that's what theater is: is a connection. Yeah, you know, I talked about. I just said the other day really uh, that what people in the audience don't often realize is the most thrilling experience I think for actors is not laughter or the applause at the end of a musical number it's that moment when there's this profound silence that you can hear from the you hear the silence if that makes sense in the audience because they're all connected with what's happening on the stage, mm. with the characters on the stage. And I realized how many times I've experienced that, that that's what they're talking about when the audience's hearts are in sync.
0: Mm. When mm-hmm. their
2: heartbeats are all beating at the same time, that has to be when that silence is going on. And I know the audiences, audiences have felt it too. They know that silence that I'm talking about and It's a beautiful, beautiful thing.
1: Well, I think that's a lovely note to end on. So, uh, Harry, I want to thank you for coming today.
2: My pleasure. It's always a joy to talk to you.
1: Yes, it's lovely to see you even uh, across the the airwaves. (laughs) You too, but you too. And, uh, I don't know that the audience is gonna see us, are they? This is just No, there no, but I, I I'd be dressed better if they were to see us. So. <laughs> Me too, and my
2: hair would look even better than it already
1: As if it were possible. Okay, well, thank you so much, Harry. <laughs> thank you,
0: Mark. For listening to this episode of The Theater Project Thinks About with Mark Spina and Harry Patrick Christian. We hope their conversation provided some insight about the changes they've witnessed both before and after Stonewall. Our audio engineer for this program was Gary Glore, and our theme music was provided by Gail Liu and Damien DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.